Hello and welcome to the Pondering Primates podcast, the official podcast of the University of Edinburgh Atheist, Humanist and Secularist Society. My name is Daniel Sharp, I'm the president of that society and your usual host. The podcast is a veritable cornucopia. We have different guests on each episode to discuss a range of issues from religion and secularism to film, art and literature. If you want to contribute then do get in touch. Our social media and contact details can be found on the Anchor page, but we're easily found by searching our name on Facebook, and our Twitter handle is at UOEAthumSakeSock. So, with all that out of the way, are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Hello, it's Daniel here. Welcome to the Pondering Primates podcast. I've got Adam Ramsey, who's a journalist and a writer for Open Democracy. Hello. Hello. Who recently co-authored a report for Open Democracy about the US Christian fundamentalist funding of the European far right, which he's going to talk about to the society soon. Uh, Mm. But first, I thought I would ask him a couple of questions. Uh, So could you just... Well, what is Open Democracy? Open Democracy is a global political website. Um, our strapline is Free Thinking for the World, which um, exists to uh, challenge power and encourage debate about how the world could be. That's mm. not quite our proper strapline. Yeah. I forgot it. <laughs> uh, you'll, be, you'll, you'll be sacked. Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> My boss, Mary, I've got it up here. Look, I can just do this. Uh-huh. Look, I can do open in a new tab, and then, it will, and then it will tell us about... Open Democracy is an independent global media platform through reporting and analysis of social and political issues, we seek to educate citizens, to challenge power, and encourage demographic debate across the world. Very good. Yeah. There you go. So we've got the proper definition. There we go, yeah. So you won't yeah. get sacked now. You've, you've done it. I, I always <laughs> think it's important to remember that in the modern world, the secret is not being able to remember information. It's knowing how to get it very quickly. Ah, that's, so you that's, saw me, you saw me there good. demonstrate that skill. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> as a modern journalist, that's what you need people to do. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, so this this report, could you give us a brief sort of pressy of it, a brief overview? Sure. So I think the important point for me here is that kind of far right and ultra conservative institutions always like to sell themselves as representing like the people against some kind of abstract liberal elite. Yeah. And you go around <laughs> Europe, but I'm going to talk a bit about doing this myself, and you find this is the thing they have in common. Mm. Um, when in fact, what they represent is the interests of the elite, and they're funded by the super wealthy and the elite. And so I spent a week in Turin about a year ago with a colleague who runs our gender section, it's called Claire Provo, talking about, in the run-up to the European elections this year, what we could do to investigate the far right, and particularly kind of far right attacks on women's rights and LGBT rights and, and so on, and the links between ultra-conservative and religious fundamentalist movements in the far right. And one of the ways we did this, we did this through a number of techniques. One of the ways was a very traditional follow-your-money mm. story. And so the <coughs> hypothesis was we've seen this kind of rise in Christian conservative activism, attacks on gay rights, attacks on uh, trans rights in particular, um, attacks on women's rights across Europe recently. And the hypothesis was that's come from somewhere. Mm. It's not like an organic demand of people. It's not like 10 years ago, lots of the people who are kind of quite religious knew what they thought about trans people. Yeah. You know, like, this is this has come from outside. Yeah, yeah. And so um, 
our hypothesis was it's probably mostly come from America, which is where mm. you see the politics before and where there's money. So we did a very simple thing in a way, which is um, we went through all of the financial filings of the big religious fundamentalist organizations in the States. They've got to submit these financial forms, um, which declare, among other things, how much money they're giving to other bits of the world mm -hmm. by region. So this has you know, there's a box for Europe, there's a box for the former USSR and mm -hmm. Latin America and so on. And we just added up these various organizations' contributions to Europe in recent years. And what we discovered is that Europe has, in the last few years, become the main place that American kind of religious fundamentalist organizations have been pumping their cash. Mm. So it used to be that they pulled their money into Latin America, and now that seems to increasingly be going into Europe. Um, and so we find sort of specifically that over <coughs> the last five years, we've seen 30 million pounds of dark money, 30 million dollars rather, of dark money, so money from unknown sources originally, mm. um, coming from religious fundamentalist organizations in the States into Europe. Mm. That's quite interesting, actually. I've just. Uh I read earlier today about there's a Pew survey just recently released, I think, <laughs> which shows that Christianity is actually on the decline even in the US. It's on a fast decline, which makes me kind of wonder, are these sort of initiatives by these fundamentalists a sort of last gasp? Because they're kind of losing already. They're losing the people. I, I think it's important to um, understand the difference between the rhetoric of the far right in the 1930s mm. and the rhetoric of the far right today, where in the 1930s, then, you know, they talk about Aryan supremacy. We are all powerful. And, you know, the, the kind of the Christian races are the great mm. people who are going to conquer the world <coughs> and so on. Whereas the equivalent people now have this kind of... Um, this white genocide narrative, mm. this, like, we're under attack, we're under siege, mm. we're losing... There's the kind of the incels and, yeah. and that whole world of people who are sort of... You know, isn't it unfair that there's some brown people now? Mm. Um, and, and so that's a huge shift. Mm. And that, as you say, displays <laughs> a kind of weakness in, in a sense that they are losing. Um, the thing I'd say to can contradict that, though, is that mm. the, they think they're winning. Yeah. Um, so I spent a week, as we'll talk about maybe later, at um, an event called the World Congress on Families, which is where these groups mm. all gather. I was there undercover, kind of posing as a funder. Is there not a, is not a Netflix documentary about... That group, um, well, so or the family from so, the American. So that's about, about one. It's, yeah. it's kind of in this world, but it's a different specific oh, organisation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, and they were very. They're talking about how, like, you know, they see Trump and Modi in India mm. and Erdogan and Viktor Orban in Hungary mm. and the Law and Justice Party in Poland and so on as this network of sort of, you know, religious conservative fundamentalists bringing back, you know, the old order as things used to be mm. and so on. And so they think they're victorious. You know, Bolsonaro, they were hugely excited about Bolsonaro, the fascist president in Brazil. In fact, it's likely that the next World Congress on Families will be in Brazil because of mm. his election there. So, so they do see themselves winning politically, even though, as you say, it's true that that base of their support, the kind of you know, mass Christianity, is in some ways in decline. <coughs> yeah, I wonder, and sometimes I suppose they do have reason, actually, to be uh, optimistic, well, they would be optimistic about the future, so they've got reasons to be so. Um, but I don't know, I feel sometimes sort of triumphalism is often a sign of insecurity. Yeah, I think it might be a sign of insecurity. Well, I, I think that, that doesn't mean that it's not a danger. I think that's right, and, and also... In fact, that makes it even more a danger, in a sense. Absolutely, you know, people under threat can lash back, and, more, and you know, in many ways what we see is um, elite groups, or, or groups with quite a lot of social power, like white men, 
reacting against the kind of relative rise, the minor relative rise in power of women mm. and people of colour. And so, you know, reacting back with misogyny and racism and homophobia. So absolutely what we're seeing you could describe as a backlash. In fact, the project that we, um, that this work was done through is called Tracking the Backlash, mm. i.e. the backlash against femin feminism, against yeah. LGBT rights. And so that, that's absolutely right. I think it's also worth drilling into the figures, though. I've not done this, but I'd mm. ask the question of you about religion in the States, because there's a big difference between talking about how many people see themselves as Christian in general mm. and how many people come from what you might see as kind of ultra-conservative evangelical yeah, yeah, movements yeah. or ultra-conservative churches. So my understanding is that there has been a significant growth in evangelical mm. Christianity, both in the States <coughs> and in Europe, mm. and that's often replaced what you might see as more kind of soft liberal mm. kind of Anglicanisms and, <coughs> and sort of mm. soft left Catholicism and so yeah. on. No, I don't actually, I, I only, I didn't have time to look into that peer report. I just kind of briefly skimmed the article and saw it was basically a decline in Christianity. But I didn't, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's just a sort of mass Christianity, not uh, the my, evangelical sort of wing. Yeah, so my guess would be that whereas 20, 30 years ago, huge numbers of people who don't really, didn't actually go to church would have vaguely described themselves as Christian because mm. that was, they kind of see it as their culture but wouldn't necessarily let that affect their views in any kind of, you know, notable way. What we're seeing now is a kind of hardening where, um, you know, people who do describe themselves as Christian are rushing to a more evangelical, mm. you know, our generation in a way, I mean, maybe different generations are probably older than that now, um, but, but younger generations who are Christian <coughs> are tending to rush sometimes to more right-wing evangelical movements mm. where, where, you know, more people are not, aren't describing themselves as religious at all. Mm. So you get both those effects at once. Yeah, it's, an, it's an old story, I suppose. So you had the, you had the Enlightenment, you had the the Counter Enlightenment, the sort of mostly Catholic thinkers who, who sort of reacted against that. Every time there's these kind of challenges, there's always a reaction. Uh, and well, eventually the Counter Enlightenment sort of succeeded in, in several parts of Europe. Uh, so it, it depends. Uh, there is, and that's right. And I, th I think you also can't separate these questions from um, two or three other things that are going on. So mm. the most obvious is uh, massive economic stagnation in the last mm. decade. Um, and so, you know, the most obvious driver of kind of the rise of um, a particular brand of further right politics, which you kind of summarise as family, faith and flag, mm. um, has obviously been the financial crisis 2007-8, the austerity that followed it, the stagnation of wages in America over 40 years um, and, you know, the fact that a very, like, because we've had a huge collapse in the traditional media model, not that that was ideal in any sense, but an increasing oligarch control of the media um, as advertising revenues have collapsed and the older mm. models died, you've seen a kind of success of the very powerful in driving the narratives around why we had the crisis and what should come next. Mm. And, you know, the uh, religious right is being used in a way, the network of the religious right mm. being used as a way to get people to support and pro to provide you know, political networks for mm. candidates like Trump and, and other far-right candidates across the world. But I think a lot of what our research is about is helping get our heads around the connections between those maybe more traditional... Uh, religious networks, particularly evangelical Christian, but also kind of the right of the Catholic Church and the what, what's seen as a new thing, the alt-right. And, mm. you know, what's surprising is that 
these things which often look culturally quite different end up being the same people. And what you see at the Royal Congress on Families is like senior Catholic church figures standing on a stage with kind of YouTube trolls. Mm. <laughs> Gods. And it just reminded me actually when you were talking about it all right, I remember one of those names, I don't know if it's specifically the all right or just some sort of general right wing kind of movement, uh, but it's associated with all right. They call themselves like the Dark Enlightenment. Like, so, uh, and I was going to draw, well, it's always easy to draw parallels, too easy and sometimes useless to draw parallels with the 1930s. But a lot of those ingredients you seem, you're talking about seem to be similar, you know, economic stagnation or economic crisis. Yeah. Followed by populism and economic crisis, and I also think that you know if you go to countries which had um, you know significant struggles with fascism in the 1930s, so whether that's you know, countries like Greece mm-hmm. or Italy or Spain, where you had you know <coughs> or former Yugoslavian Yugoslav countries where there were attempts by fascists to take control and serious resistance mm. from the people then people don't forget that it was the Catholic and Orthodox churches mm. who marched hand-in-hand hand with fascism. <coughs> they, you know, the reason that Spain is now one of the most atheistic countries in the world is that there's a very strong memory that the Catholic Church mm. was the institution of fascism. And I think it's easy to forget that in Britain because mm. we didn't have that same history of you know, domestic fascism that was fought against. You know, these were you know, The Catholic Church is how the ruling class um, managed to take control, along with the army, it's how the ruling class managed to take control of these countries as they move towards socialism and stop socialist governments mm. getting into power. And the networks and power of the churches have been vital in those senses ever since. But I think it's also important to remember that you know, at the same time you see religious forces that do the opposite. You mm. know, and, and we shouldn't discount the long tradition of emancipatory religious forces. You know, I'm not, I don't happen to believe in God, but I'm not an evangelical atheist because you, know, you, can, you can see religion being used for both good and bad in these struggles. Mm. I could go. I could go on about that. Actually, I'm, I'm probably a bit more. Uh, maybe being a younger generation, I'm still in that sort of evangelical zeal uh, about atheism and religion. But uh, go on. I th- well, I was. Uh, I would. Uh, just a comment, just briefly, was just that. Um, obviously, there's these sort of uh, you know anti-slavery in the, the United States. The abolitionist movement was inspired by Christianity, uh, but so too were was the Confederacy. Um, they could sing psalms and hold up the Bible to justify. So there was, there's, always, there's always one side that tends to be on the wrong side in these things, and it's always the religious side. Uh, whereas on, on the abolitionist movement, some of it was religious, much of it wasn't. And the same with other uh, noble causes which have proven right. Where, wherever, wherever, there's a, wherever there's a bad cause to be championed, uh, the church is not far behind. I think that... The way I would see it is, is Being through... Being on view is not an endorsement of that view. This is my view. Not sure. Just <laughs> I think the way I'd see it is through what I would call a Gramscian lens. So, by which I mean, um, you know, we should think about the kind of writings of the Italian thinker Antonio Gramsci. Mm. He wrote a lot about how institutions are very important. And so, <coughs> you know, the, it's absolutely the case that hierarchical religious institutions were very effective in re- introducing you know, hierarchy into society in general, and hierarchy <coughs> often has tended to produce, you know, terrible politics, racial hierarchies, gender hierarchies, ultimately fascism. And, and that needs to be struggled against. But, you know, similarly, other kinds of institution which happen to be religious have been used to fight against those. I don't think it's about the beliefs of the religion, I think it's about what people do when they get together in groups. And that one of the things that's brought humans together in groups 
is religion and people do good and bad things when they get together in groups, mm. depending on but the content of that ideology. Much better reasons to do good things. Sure, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not here to try and persuade <laughs> you to sign up to religion. No. I, ju- I just so think we're getting that, a bit off topic. Sorry, I was, I, I just wanted to. I suppose the way I understand these things is not really about religion no, versus non-religion. Yeah. It's about if I was going to use very old-fashioned language, labour and capital, or it's about mm. the, you know, the way that elites tend to exploit <coughs> ordinary mm. people in order to advance their interests mm. and. Religion is one of the tools in that, mm. but it's one of many, and you have to understand mm-hmm. how they're all used. Mm. <coughs> yeah. Well, we could talk about that, but we're, we're going to get back to the sort of topic at hand. My kind of sort of final sort of questions were, what's the danger? Like, what is the worst-case scenario that you see? And also, to be a bit more hopeful, what's the solution? So I think the... That's a, a two big questions, sorry. Well, but <laughs> So we've seen around the world in the last <coughs> half decade or, or less, the last two or three years, um, the arrival of Donald Trump as an American president, the even more terrifyingly, the arrival of Bolsonaro as Brazilian president, the arrival of Modi in India, we've seen the Chinese regime become increasingly fascistic. And you know, what that's about is a kind of collapse in the former model of capitalism, neoliberalism, and it's replacement by an even worse form of capitalism, which you might call surveillance capitalism, or you might even just call fascism, mm-hmm. kind of the traditional name for it. And you know, that's very worrying. But what's very hopeful is that all of these organisations have very contingent support. All these politicians rely on a very disaffected uh, population not turning out to vote. So they can turn out their core supporters mm. to vote for them. And, you know, what... As I was saying before, we, you know, we spent a lot of time researching the European elections. I've had a lot of time travelling around Europe before them. My main, my main prediction before the elections was that the far right would not do nearly as well as most of the media were saying they would because millions of young people would show up to vote who hadn't previously voted because previously they didn't have skin in the game. But people you know, saw <laughs> Trump being elected, they saw what was happening with Brexit, and they decided to... You know, they would decide to show up and stop that happening. And that was indeed what happened. That, you know, the far right in Europe did a lot worse than they expected they were going to. You know, when I was at the World Congress on Families before the election, you know, these far right politicians were all thinking they're about to storm Europe and be the biggest mm. party in the European Parliament and use that as a springboard to take control of government right across Europe. And that has not happened. Mm. You know, as people have become more engaged with politics, as they've understood that the planet's burning and that the people who are running their countries do not have any kind of solutions to the problem they face. People have understood they need to re-engage with politics, and they've done so, you know, in magnificent ways. And I think, you know, mm. watching young people show up to strike about the climate, watching, um, you know, huge numbers of people show up for movements against racism and um, for greater economic equality has been hugely exciting in, in recent years, and that, I think, will, you know, mark a longer-term trend. And it's true that... Mm. You know, the, the real fight is going to be over whether the opponents of the far right are people who are seen to represent and cling to a dying status quo, which is obviously failing, or whether they can be replaced by people who have any kind of vision for the future. Mm. And, you know, as more people have some kind of vision for the future that can excite people, show up in our politics and get involved in our politics, you know, that those people will, I'm pretty confident, be more than capable of defeating the far right. Mm. So the solution is to engage and to vote 
That's and your, to organise, and to organise, not just vote, organise, get involved with politics, get active, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and don't be, you know, understand that the 40 years we had of the kind of roughly neoliberal model um, is over, and the future is open to people who are brave enough to invent it. And the reason the right keeps winning is that the alternative to it is always presented as being this sort of establishment from 10 years ago who clearly have no ideas and are clearly caught up in an old corrupt regime. Mm. Well, on that note, I think we shall end our sort of brief uh, opening discussion Thanks very much. There, and we'll be back after this break. Great, thanks. Okay, so welcome back. Yes, we've just had the discussion from Adam Ramsey, uh, which is very interesting, and now we're going to have some questions slash discussion. So if anyone uh, wishes to speak, there you go. I was going to talk about the, the nine ninety board. Uh, So, so um, the first thing I have to say is that my colleague Claire Provo, who I did the story with, is a brilliant data journalist, and anything I vaguely know about this is because she brought it to me, and I don't know anything like as much as she does, so um, I don't want to imply that I'm some expert in this. Um, but no, that, what, the what they have to declare is which region of the world the money is going into. So it just says Europe, or former USSR, they have the region, or Latin America, for example. It doesn't tell you anything more than that. So once, so what we were able to work out is that, and then one of the other things we've been doing since then is a lot of kind of groundwork across different bits of Europe, looking at some of these groups and where the money seems to be being spent and so on. But that's a much more complicated and difficult process. Obviously, you've got a whole continent to try and map. Yeah. And is there, is there any way to Um, so the only way to, I mean, there's two ways you can follow money. There's public documentation, which means like going to company's house, or in, in, if it's a UK company, or the equivalent in other countries, um, looking at registered companies, going through their accounts. But that gives very vague information. It won't tell you direct transfers. Um, the other thing is sometimes you get court cases where particular organisations are forced to reveal their accounts for particular reasons, and that's then, you know, you can then look at them in a whole range of ways. So... One of the parts of the story here about Citizen Go, um, if you read through it, is that we talk about how um, a guy called Luca Volante in Italy, um, his organisation, the Novateri Foundation, gave money to Citizen Go. And um, the, at the same time as they were giving the money, they were receiving money through what's called the Azerbaijani laundromat. So getting money from Azerbaijani um, oligarchs, probably illegally. But the reason we know that is because they were forced to reveal their accounts in court because they were being put on trial for being involved in this illegal money laundromat. And then once you've got the accounts in court, you can go through them line by line and find that, oh, look, there's the money for Citizen Go. Um, so in that case, you know, we were able to find that money because we were able to get our hands on the courts, on court papers that revealed partly because basically my colleague managed to, she's based in Italy and she knew an Italian journalist who'd been there and managed to get hold of them. But that, you know, you, you can't just see who's transferring money into my bank account. You know, yeah. My life would be a lot easier if you could. Yeah. 
wondering, um, in what way do the Christian fundamentalists benefit from supporting these pirate groups? Well, there's two things. Um, so firstly, there's an alignment between their agendas. So um, the main issues that these Christian fundamentalists tend to care about are um, opposing women's right to have an abortion, um, opposing uh, LGBT rights, so things like you know, same-sex marriage, um, rights of trans people, and so on, which they see as a kind of attack on the traditional family. Um, and often, although not always, far-right parties support those same causes. Um, the way they sometimes frame it, so you see particularly things like the Hungarian government. In fact, the Hungarian education minister explicitly said this at the World Congress on Families. He said that you know, the reason that they have explicit policies to try to get Hungarians to breed more is because they are having a population crisis, all the young people are leaving and going abroad, and they don't want to replace them with foreigners. They want to have you know, more Hungarians rather than having to get, as they see it, foreigners in from you know, probably the global south to work in order to fund their pensions. So they see that, you know, they talk about that very explicitly, that there's this alignment between um, you know, encouraging people to have big families and breed and not have abortions and so on, and um, not having immigration. And so that's why you know, they have this kind of idea of family patient flag. But I think also more generally, there's a close alignment because that particular kind of ultra-conservative fundamentalism is about um, traditional hierarchies. It's about power hierarchies, as is far-right politics. And so there's a very close alignment usually between, and always has been, between you know, conservative Christianity and the far-right. You, know, you see this, as I was saying earlier, if you go to any southern European country which had a serious resistance against fascism, then those countries, you know, huge amounts of population have deep scepticism in both the Catholic Church or for other reasons. The Orthodox Church, because they were the main vehicles of fascism, along with business. You know, business and the church is, is who delivered fascism in Spain, in Italy, in Greece, in the former Yugoslavia, etc. Um, and you know, people resisted them, and that's why Spain is now one of the most atheist countries in the world, because the Catholic Church is seen as marching arm in arm with fascists, as it did. Can I just, I was just going to ask quickly um, <coughs> on that sort of note, is that, so is it purely sort of ideological because these Christian fundamentalists in America, they don't, I don't, I presume they don't make any money from this. Is it just purely ideological sort of crusades across the world? I was going to ask, is there a political aspect to it in the sense that it will help the success of the American far right agenda if they have anti-federalism uh, sort of, lots of anti-federalism groups in, in Europe because it helps to split up or um, frustrate the European Union uh, if, if you guys are, are powerful and it helps that, that helps American uh, business and, and, uh, yeah and there's, I mean there's a strong alignment between the interests of um, you know, wealthy Americans and the politics of evangelical and kind of right-wing Catholic movements in, in the States. And as you say, that absolutely aligns with partly things like wanting to break up the EU and these sort of attacks on social liberalism. Um, 
and um, you know, and, and partly it's because you know they they make this argument, and so the Action Institute is the organisation that's most prominent for doing this in the states, that um, free market capitalism is the kind of correct religious way. And so the Action Institute is famous for kind of Christian, Christian fundamentalism and denying climate change at once because they see, um, you know, the free market is God's way of, of you know, controlling the world and states getting in the way of that is wrong and unchristian. Um, and the EU is particularly wrong and unchristian because it's sort of, you know, removed from these kind of godly old states that have, you know, in some mm. way the, the, the will of kind of people as endowed with freedom by God you know, God endows us with our freedom, and the state takes it away. Is the way they often frame it, um, and so that, you know, and so and so absolutely, there's a kind of close alignment between free market ideology and <coughs> religious fundamentalism in that sense, and and you know the way the church is used to push right politics. There's also um, a close alignment between the uh, interests of big churches and the economic right. So if you look at you know, the history of welfare states across Europe, where they exist. Welfare states have almost always functioned to take power away from churches. So the reason Ireland doesn't have an NHS is it had the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church got it. You know, the reason people had to go to church was because if you didn't go to church, you didn't get the services the church provides. And so the church got its power from the fact that it is the main provider of social care in, in Ireland, or was. And so they were pushed very hard to stop the NHS, the NHS being founded in Ireland. You could only get an NHS... In Britain, once you'd um, have big enough trade unions that were all powerful, you know, significantly more powerful than the church, you were able to stand up against that organised power. And what you see in the southern states is big churches oppose things like socialised healthcare because they understand that, that would take power away from them because the main power they have, the reason people you know, have to keep showing up to the services and communion, is that's where you get social care from. And once you you know locate <coughs> in the state, then the church has lost that <coughs> control of your results. So absolutely there's a kind of alignment between those ideologies, which is not coincidental. It's about the way that power operates in society and that if you build institutions which are very hierarchical, then of course people with more power are going to be able to use them to continue to control society. They're not interested in the Quakers. No. <laughs> there's a... <coughs> quite, sorry, well, sorry, sorry, one second. I'll just make this comment. Or, that I just it came up when you were uh, talking about the sort of free market sort of confluence with the with the far right and free market economics um i think richard dawkins that little known atheist that probably nobody's heard of but he's you know you know uh he he once wrote an essay about evolution well he, he's written a lot about evolution but um he wrote an essay in which he said that evolution just nature evolution is very selfish it is free market economics it's one size fits all it's one you know, it's uh, for the most part, it's dog eat dog, um, which is not how it sh how the world or human society should be, but that's how a lot of evolutionary uh, change happens and how it nature is. And he said, that, um, <laughs> sorry, this is just a comment. This isn't. Uh, he said uh, that if if evolution could vote, evolution would vote for the Republicans, uh, which would maybe make some of the creationist Republicans think, oh well, maybe evolution is not such a bad thing if it's uh, very competitive. And in the context that he was saying it, he doesn't like the Republicans, so he was, uh, he was just making a sort of ironic sure. comment. Sure. Um, I mean, my understanding is Richard Dawkins is very out of date in <coughs> evolutionary theory. Um, dogs don't eat dogs. Dogs don't 
No, I mean, I'm just yeah, using that as a phrase. I'm not using that as like no, 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 literal, no, no, but. I understand what you mean, but what I mean is that that is not how evolution <coughs> operates. You know, most species, certainly humans, are very social mm. species. You know, humans, yeah. humans have two main skills um, evolutionarily. The first and most important one is we can run a marathon faster than any other species. And um, the way that for most of our history we've survived is being able to run down animals over, you know, days. And mm. that was, that's why we are well. know, able to survive. And the <coughs> second is that we collaborate. And, mm. and that evolutionarily, you know, we, we evolved to be able to produce these astonishingly large societies mm. where we can, um, you know, see more than, in many ways, almost any other species by collaborating. And so most modern evolutionary theory... Um, you know, <coughs> kind of challenges that kind of Richard Dawkins. Can I can I just add? View uh, of the way that I don't think it's all. Fa- well, I mean, the sort of genetic sort of selection is the kind of uh, accepted evolutionary view. Sure, no, but also, 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 it's not even like again. Like I shouldn't make comments because then I just go off on a tangent. Now we're talking about evolutionary theory. Uh, but actually, like again, that was a broad comment he made in an essay that wasn't a sort sure. of work. Has has actually, if you read. The selfish gene, most of it is about cooperation and altruism. And that's what that's what he talks about most in his books is the evolution of altruism. Sure. Um, so it's not uh, like there's a sort of character of, of, of the selfish gene as this sort of free market sort of thing, which he completely disavowed by, uh, when when uh, people took that ideological slant on it. Uh, but yes, anyway, we'll talk about evolutionary theory another day. We'll have you back. We'll talk about evolutionary theory. Emma. different groups of vulnerable people, whether that be regular church goers, whether that be people who are kind of leaning right on the internet, and they make these moral imperatives that we need to protect Western democracy, we need to protect Western civilization. And so even if the big organizations themselves are only thinking of this, the people donating to those organizations in the states a lot of times feel compelled to protect their interests abroad because they feel like society is deteriorating, especially Western society. Yeah, so, so um, I think that's, I agree with half of that. And I would slightly challenge the other half of it. Um, so the half I'd agree with is that absolutely there's a strong narrative, and again we saw this. You see this you know, throughout right-wing politics in general. It's not it wasn't new, but also saw it again and again and again at the World Congress on Family from the stage. Where it's kind of fascinating to watch these people give these speeches that were kind of about, you know, um, implicitly how you know like Western society is under attack. You know, so. Um, so there's this guy in a MAGA hat, you know, Trump supporter, talking about how, um, uh, you know, Europe and America, uh, our values, our people, our society will prevail. Of course, when he says our people, he means white people. Um, but they tie together that idea of sort of European civilization and whiteness in this way that allows them to sort of adopt some liberal rhetoric while really being fascist. Then that's important and an important part of the narrative. The bit I challenge, though, is the idea that these are usually vulnerable people. Um, so one of the things I find most fascinating about the way that the media covers um, the rise of the far right across the Western world recently is that again and again and again, journalists will tell you that this is coming from marginalised groups, people who are impoverished and so on. And the data does not bear that out at all. So I'm not saying you're saying this. But when I said vulnerable, I meant more in the context of people who would be susceptible to falling for what... 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Susceptible might have been a better... Yeah, susceptible. But I think that the, re the thing that makes them susceptible... So, so just to give you the stats. So, for example, in America, um, people who earn less than $50,000 a year were 11% more likely to vote for Hillary Clinton than for Donald Trump. People who earn between $50,000 and $200,000 a year were significantly more likely to vote for Trump, and that's why he won. In other words, Trump won because the rich voted for him, not because the poor voted for him. And yet, all the coverage of the election was about how suddenly all these poor areas are voting for Trump. Not really true. Um, what had happened is that people in the Rust Belt haven't, who traditionally were Democrat didn't shop to vote for Hillary Clinton because they couldn't bring themselves to. But they didn't go and vote for Trump. You know, working class people suddenly didn't, didn't suddenly become fascists. What happened is, what's always happened, you know, when fascism rises, which is the middle class voted for it. So in Brazil, when Bolsonaro was elected, 92% or so of the poorest um, areas voted for Hadid, the, the Social Democrat candidate. And 97% or so of the richest areas voted for Bolsonaro. It was, it was the middle class who, who went fascist um, through largely, you know, or in large part, the rise of evangelical churches in Brazil. Um, you know, you see the same with Brexit, that we're always being told, oh, it's these impoverished areas in the North Kingdom that voted for Brexit. Most Brexit voters live in the south of England. The most common, if you just ask Brexit voters to describe their class identity, they, the most common identity is middle class. Most of them describe themselves as middle class middle class led the Brexit vote, and yet the media has again and again told us that, you know, this was a working class backlash against some elite. No, it was the middle class voting for, for a far-right movement, which is what's always happened everywhere. Citizen Go, I interviewed one of the founders of Vox about Citizen Go um, when I was in Spain, and, you know, he, he had a very clear understanding of what he said, these are, this is a movement of middle class Catholics. Um, and so... Um, so yeah, so sorry, I, maybe you won't say that. And you, so I, I would agree with you in that case. But so the people who are susceptible to these things are people with enormous privilege who are terrified because they get their social value, their value from themselves in being more important and more powerful than someone they see as less of, less than them. Whether that's because that person is a person of colour or a woman or a gay person or a trans person or whatever, and they feel under threat because they're no longer being told by society that they are innately superior. We are, I'm, I'm a straight white man, but we are innately superior. And, you know, and that's susceptible. So I think, yeah, absolutely. Susceptible is a good word, but they're not vulnerable. They're the most powerful in society. In slight defence of the middle class, they did lead the French Revolution at the start. Well, absolutely. They've not always been bad. Well, no, absolutely. <laughs> and, so, and so if you look at, um, you know, the, the history... Of, you know, not just the French Revolution, so you look at the history of the 1840s revolutions across mm -hmm. Europe. Absolutely, they, you know, it's always the case that you have to have what, um, if you're going to use the traditional terminology, a bourgeois revolution before you get any kind of bigger change. So absolutely, one of the most interesting things about British politics is that we're the one country in Europe whose bourgeois revolution failed. And arguably that's why we ended up as the most right-wing regressive country in Northern Europe. Have any other comments, questions? No. I no? Cool. I forgot it. <laughs> we can wait a moment, see if you remember. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, yeah, no, I just wanted to say thank you for a very good talk. You know, oh, it's very interesting. Well, thanks for having me. And I'm sure our audience of millions uh, mm -hmm. will, will, will also... Well, thank you yes. all of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, it was very interesting, and uh, I think there's a lot to think about there. Thanks for so, having me. Sure. Okay, thank you.